John, can you hear me? Yeah, I can hear you. You're coming in loud and clear, Jeremy. Oh, God bless you. You're at the airport, are you? I am indeed. I'm in Sydney Airport, and I'm on my way back home from Indo-Pacific 2023. What, what was the uh, the gathering? I take it it was the, the global elite of the world. 40 countries, was it? Yeah, about that. Look, um, yes, it was an interesting um, uh, uh, trade show. It's uh, arguably Australia's largest, largest defence trade show. So uh, specifically designed for, uh, you know, military people to wander around all the, um, you know, big companies and small to medium enterprises working in the defence industry set. So, yeah. What about uh, our, just objectively, if you, it was a sort of a, a, a marketing exercise, what did you make of Australia's uh, um, exhibition or uh, a demonstration of uh, what we have on the, on the, on the, on the table? Well, look, uh, we were associated with the uh, uh, Defence SA stand, and I have to say they put on a very professional stand indeed. The rest of the uh, stands that were there, well, we had, you know, the usual suspects. Oh, sorry about that. Um, uh, you know, we had like the um, uh, Department of Defence and, yeah. and various other uh, security-related agencies. But, um, yeah, in order, in order for um, defence industry to really gain from these kind of issues, there is one glaring problem, and that is what is the government doing to, um, you know, to, to actually mean what it says in terms of defence acquisition. Uh, we know that uh, on the first day of the conference, uh, former Chief of Army, uh, Peter Lay, he had... Um, Said a couple of things that uh, yeah, didn't he? concerns, <laughs> and, and and they're legitimate, Jeremy. They're absolutely legitimate. I mean, uh, you know, uh, the Albanese government. I mean, I, I went to a, a, a function um, a night or so ago where Andrew Hastie, the Shadow Defence Minister, hmm. uh, had a bit of a crack at the government, and and look, you know, rightfully so, because you know, on the one hand, Albanese says that this is the most dangerous period in Australia's history since the. Uh, the late 1930s, early 1940s. And on the other hand, you know, he's uh, pulling funding from this and pulling funding from that. And, you know, the defence industry said they need to have certainty in terms of how are they going to proceed uh, with various defence projects. If they constantly get delayed or shelved, of course, companies will go under uh, as a consequence of this, leaving Australia vulnerable because, of course, we need sovereign defence capability and only... Uh, a proper supply of jobs going to defence industry will actually provide that. Well, when a when a, a man as respected as General Lay comes out and makes a public statement like that, I mean, literally, yeah. this government has ripped the heart out of the army. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah, he has. Uh, well, well, it ha look, this government has done something, and uh, uh, you, you, you could sit back and say, well, okay, army hurts because. Uh, the, the the various um, uh, uh, strategic or well, the strategic review that had been uh, commissioned um, earlier this year uh, suggests that uh, our defence focus should be maritime, and we are an island continent, and I think that there is some sensible reason for why we should certainly have a maritime culture here. But the other thing that one has to realise too is that we need to have a sustainable army, and so on. On the one side, you're they're they're wanting to they wanted to cut. Uh, the guts out of the army to help fund naval expansion, but you can't have it both ways because if you can't ship your soldiers around continental Australia with you know uh, armoured vehicles to protect them against light fire and stuff like that, you, you're 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 creating a vulnerability where there should be no 
no vulnerability in the 21st century. We just look at the Russia-Ukraine war, the Israel-Hamas yeah. war, you know. Yeah. You need to have armoured vehicles, but... It is what it is, Jeremy. It is what it is. It it's is. Politics. I know, but uh, when we have a system of government uh, such as the one we have, where you end up with ministers in charge of portfolios with absolutely no experience in that area whatsoever, mm-hmm. and yeah. I haven't looked into the minister for the army or the minister for defence just to check what they were doing before politics, but I would suggest that if you've got people like Lieutenant uh, General uh, Lay um, talking to you with his 37 years of experience, you'd sit down and bloody well listen to him. Yes, well, just I like mean, you wouldn't go on. Oils. Yeah, well, you wouldn't go on in your merry way uh, making decisions that were not based on, on, on real knowledge. Well, look, the thing is that what we need to do is we need to make sure that we have a proper strategy in this country. And even though there was a strategic review done by Angus Houston and, uh, oh, forget the other guy. Oh, uh, um, Stephen Smith, the former defence minister, Stephen Smith. Yeah, yeah. Um, th- th- this, this particular defence review was not strategic in its focus. You know, it was talking about shuffling around. Uh, the, the various services to meet the objective, the long-term objective of having a bigger and more sustainable naval fleet. Yep. And as I said, that's fine, but uh, you need to make sure that all three services are ticking off on that on that sort of policy. Because if you leave one of the services far poorer, that means, you know, in, in, in the case that we're seeing right now, Army is going to have problems. Um, if, if you wanted to cut, uh, cut Air Force back, you know, in order to fund another... Uh, ship or two, that's going to have problems for the Air Force. So all of these things have flow-on effects, and you need to have all three services basically come together as a single strategic entity and say, well, okay, what is for the betterment of Australia? How are we going to best implement whatever it is that the government of the day wants as its strategic platform? But, Jeremy, here's the problem. Australia is not a strategic country. We're very good at tactical stuff, small-scale stuff in the military, but we're not really good at thinking big picture. And that's where countries like China, Russia, various other countries outstrip us because they have these, you know, five, ten-year programs. They think about the future. They allocate resources in a, well, what you would consider a responsible way if they wanted to actually expand their military and security capabilities. We're just not in that ballpark. We're just not in that ballpark. Dr. John Bruni from Sage International is with me. He's in Sydney, coming back to Adelaide. By the way, um, did you? Uh, I don't know if they reported it over there, but I heard news this morning that uh, of South Australia's defence industry, we had about uh, well, a little under three thousand people mm. in, in that industry, and uh, we would need somewhere like 9,000? And the question was being asked, where will we get these people? Well, uh, one of the things that we are labouring under at the moment is a severe, and I mean severe, skill shortage. If we can't get people out of the schools and into various trades, which will allow them them to uh, integrate into defence industry, we're going to end up having even more problems on a compound basis moving forward. Now, some people would say, well, we need a bigger population. The other side of the equation is that there are a lot of skilled people who are either underemployed or, or have been somehow not able to come back into the system, but they'd be quite good to be 
brought back in? Where is the government on those matters? We would be able to actually bump up our skill base if we were to identify people who are currently underemployed doing other things, bring them back into the system, mm. make them fully engaged, and then we could actually start patching up our, our defense industry skill base. But no one's talking about that. No, no one's talking about it. Well, uh, General Lay, I mean, he's the kind of person I think you'd, you'd bring into your circle and you'd want to talk to him about that oh. because he's got 37 years' experience. But clearly, when he comes out and makes these public statements, it's, mm. it seems to me that there's a bit of frustration uh, yeah, behind the, what he's saying. Correct. Uh, the frustration obviously revolves around politics. You know, uh, I think the bugbear in the room isn't so much that we don't know what's wrong with the country. It's that we don't have the right political leadership necessary to overcome them. So, yes, we can say we've got a skill shortage in defence industry. We can say that, you know, we have no strategy that links the three services, space and cyber together in a coherent fashion. Mm. We can say all of that. But who is going to fix it? Because ultimately, it's going to be a politician, defence minister, the prime minister. They have to be committed for many years in advance yeah. of, the, of the two and a half year electoral cycle. So I don't see anyone talk about that, which is the key issue in this country. Well, there can't be any forward planning, can there? There can't be any forward planning because it's all stop-start stuff. And and look, you know, I'm afraid that uh, even though I was quite heartened by what Andrew Hastie had to say, I know from having worked in the political uh, areas before, as soon as he gets in, he's going to be lumbered with the same kind of rubbish that every other government seems to, or every other government minister seems to be... um, associated with it's like well once you're in power the equation changes once you're out of power you can say whatever the hell you like about the government and how incompetent they are when you're in the hot seat then all of a sudden you drop the ball so it's it's yeah it's it's really the the political issue Jeremy, is the hardest issue to actually fight here in all of this peter Leahy's absolutely right but he's retired he's out of power he can say a couple of statements um on, on the cusp of a very important defense show but in the end, as true as what he said is, he's not going to affect the system because he's retired and he's not a politician, so he can't push at that level. Mm, no, I understand. Uh, the Hunter-class frigates, how far behind schedule are they? Um, next question. <laughs> uh, is that because of money or because we're not able to build them or what? Uh, look, I think that there are a lot of bureaucratic issues that are behind the scenes not helping matters much. I think some of the issues we've already touched on, skills uh, skills shortage being one of them. I mean, if you want to expand your fleet, you're going to have to have a, a skilled workforce out there doing it. I just don't think that we have the manpower necessary to expand uh, the hunter-class frigate fleet out the way that we, you know, have our ambitions going. But nonetheless, nonetheless... Um, uh, it will be done. It's just going to be slightly delayed, probably by a few years, I would imagine. What should our uh, uh, fleet, our surface fleet, a lot of talk about the submarines, of course, but what should our surface fleet be and, and how many of them should there, should we be making? Well, see, okay, l- l- let's try to break this down because there's the, the, the crewed or the manned part of the fleet and now, um, as Indo-Pacific showed very clearly, most of the displays out there, uh, you know, it's all about rem- remote data fusion and drones. So you can do a lot of stuff with unmanned vehicles and vessels. I mean, there was one particular technology which was really quite amazing. Uh, it looked like a big 
sail jutting out from from a from an ordinary yacht if you looked at it from a distance but actually it was a solar powered long-range remote vessel that could operate uh you know when australia's north um and operate as a chain of such vessels to cover off on say illegal immigration or you know um illicit um uh, marine smuggling and all that kind of stuff. So, I mean, we are getting better at the technology level mm. to allow us to have a smaller manpower base. But there is a there is a, a critical turning point in all of this because ultimately you still need to have the manpower necessary to drive these systems. So, if you cut too close to the bone, then you end up having problems anyway. So, we will never really get, be able to get over the the major issue, which is personnel for mm. the uniform mm. services. And then we, we have the other issue, and that is the skills shortage. So we need to fix those two things before we even can start talking about national sovereign capability or strategy or any of the highbrow stuff. We well, have to fix the base. Well, why don't, why, why don't we uh, maybe reprioritize the money that we've got? I mean, if you look at uh, what the NDIS is uh, costing and the disability support pension and uh, the money that goes off to Aboriginal causes some 40 well, billion i mean to put all of this together uh, if we don't if we can't defend our country there's not really much point in having all of these you know nice little socialist uh, trimmings and things that are close to their heart i mean the yeah. government's heart yeah look, I, mean, I agree i think that we're we're a very rich country but we mi- we we misdirect our resources chronically and i think that that speaks to a a glaring incompetence in our federal leadership and even sometimes in the state you know, depends on how how much of a lead they're taking in various defence matters. But you know, we don't have a perfect structure, and our politics is 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 very is very difficult. It's just a difficult environment. Um, and people talk a lot, they promise a lot, but they hardly ever deliver. Which means that the men and women in uniform are always going to be at the you know cop the rough end of the stick because they're going to have to do more with less. And we're at a point now that we can't do any more with less because we already have less. You know? and, and the robots aren't coming quick enough. So we've got a lot of systems that still need manning. And even the remote systems have to have a human in the loop. So if you don't have the skilled people necessary to fly or sail a drone, mm-hmm. you're stuffed. Well, I tell you, John, John, be careful of the word manned. Because oh, uh, the military person, people, <laughs> uh, crude, crude, Staffed, uh, the, mili- yeah. the military's uh, contribution to wokeness. Wednesday, oh. Wednesday, uh, I reported a little while back. They announced that planes would no longer be unmanned, but they would be uncrewed. Uh, oh, oh. All right, Jeremy. I'm old school. I like I like my English languages. I yeah, understood no, me, it growing up. Me too. Me too. Yeah. Every once yeah. in a while, a government will want an inquiry, and I don't know what these inquiries cost, but I would think I would think a lot of money. Uh, the the dib. Dib report. Do you remember the Dib thing? Oh yeah, 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 yeah. yeah. I saw white paper. I, I, I saw uh, Kim Beasley wandering around the stages uh, over the last couple of days as well. Yeah. So that that brought all that back. Yeah, yeah. But I do remember it, the Dib report. So we spend all of this money, and uh, the boffins sit down, and the academics and the intellectuals, and they tell us exactly what we should be aiming for and spending our money on, and etc. And, and it just ends up uh, on a on a bench somewhere collecting dust or in a filing cabinet. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's Australia, Jeremy. I hate to tell you. <laughs> uh, well, what, what do you what do you make of the Middle East? Is that um, I heard this morning that they're going to have a four hour uh, cessation of hostilities every day to allow uh, 
Palestinians to uh, head south or get out over the border and into into Egypt. Yeah, look, I, I think that at the moment that is an abject disaster. Um, I think that trying to have these uh, four-hour intervals, as noble as it all sounds, that's four hours. You're in a shooting, a hot shooting war. Um, things are blowing up left, right, and centre. I don't know whether you, that that provides enough of a window. Uh, to either provide humanitarian relief on a sustained mm. basis or get people to safety. Because, you know, a, a lot of people, it's, it's been really interesting observing the commentary since the war started. And, you know, I, I don't want to be the one sitting on the fence, but I like to look at both sides of the story. Mm. Um, uh, it, you know, being an analyst, you have to do this kind of thing. But, you know, look, the way that the Israelis are prosecuting their war against Hamas as efficient and effective as that may be for Israeli national security purposes, it is not efficient and not effective for Palestinians caught up in the fighting, on, on the backside of the fighting. Now, if the Israelis and Hamas were out in the middle of an open field and they were, you know, having tilts at each other, that's one thing. But you're talking about a, 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 a very densely populated urban set that's been quite smashed to pieces right now. Uh, roads are blown up and buildings have come down across roads. Trying to get people up and out, uh, whether it's to evacuate out of Gaza or to get humanitarian supplies into Gaza, is going to be, dare I say, problematic to say the least. Do you get the feeling that there's any uh, exit strategy on the part of the Israelis? What are they going to do when they've done the job? How long are they going to stay there? Who's going to, I don't know, who's going to repair the place? Who's going to rebuild it? I wonder if anyone's thought about any of this. Look, many people, including myself, have questioned this. You know, I mean, um, I I followed the the, the line of thinking of uh, former CIA Director General uh, Petraeus, who who effectively uh, said, look, you know, when you start a military campaign of this nature or any nature, it behooves one to have an exit strategy or or at least uh, not, not so much an exit strategy, um, um, a, a phase four in the strategy, which yeah. basically means what are you doing with the, when the fighting stops? An end phase, because, yeah. Yeah, yeah, the end phase. So so it's not clear that Israel has an end phase to this. Now, the end phase for them would be to root out Hamas from Gaza. If it only were that simple, um, it, in the end, once, you, once you've destroyed what was already a very bad place, Where's the investment going to come from? I mean, are American companies lining up to go into post-war Gaza to rebuild and reconstruct? I don't think so. I don't think so. so. The Europeans won't either. You know, they'll they'll probably get a trickle of humanitarian assistance coming in. The Israelis will, you know, maintain a very tight grip on what goes inside uh, the territory of Gaza post-war. So, again, you know, what, what is in it for the Palestinians to you know, see that there is a future beyond Hamas and Hamas-like organizations. Yeah. I can honestly say to you, from past experience, there is absolutely no hope of this. And 10 years from now, they're going to be fighting an even nastier bloody outfit, um, you know, if they don't put this to rest permanently. But, you know, it, in a war, you've got two sides and both sides have to be willing to come together. This war is complicated by the fact that the Israelis are fighting what they consider an existential threat in Hamas. Hamas is not representative of the majority of Gazan Palestinians. This has to be made 100% clear. Yeah. But on the other side, the Israelis do have a right for, uh, to self-defense. It all comes down to that, that terrible word, proportionality. You know, how do you go after a paramilitary group 
hiding in rubble and tunnels and, and bunkers. Well, what, what do you do with that? Um, the Israeli defense forces are a conventional defense force. They've got tanks, they've got missiles and artillery and all kinds of things that they can rain down on Gaza and they can destroy a lot of stuff yeah. without necessarily destroying the core group of Hamas. Yeah. I, I, I noticed I noticed that they're you know, the, the Hamas HQ was sitting comfortably um, in a Gulf state. I won't name names, but I think most of your listeners will know which Gulf state this is. Yeah. And, um, you know, they're all millionaires and they're all sitting down have, leading the life of Riley and directing their war from afar. Mm. Now, where, where's, where's the bloody sense in that? Why hasn't anyone taken these guys out? But anyway, you know. <laughs> well, Mossad's pretty good at that. I'm, I'm well, surprised would, yeah. too, yeah. Yeah. yeah, well, 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 Jeremy, I would say prior to October 7th, I would have expected that Mossad would have been good at pretty much everything. But considering the fact that Hamas managed to invade southern Israel in such an egregious manner in so many numbers, someone within the Israeli body politic or security services were asleep at the wheel, right? Yes. So right now, I don't have a great deal of confidence that Mossad or Shin Bet or any of the Israeli intelligence services have the capacities that that were legendary when when I was growing up. You know, you looked at the Israeli intelligence services and you you, you, you read their adventurous daring do's in various parts of the world. And you think, wow, yep, yep. they're pretty efficient. They're scary. Well, they must now, have been. They must have been really efficient because they, with pinpoint accuracy, they know the buildings that uh, yep. that uh, Hamas is. Um, head office or uh, th this building here does such and such and this building does so and so. So their mm. intelligence is certainly um, very good, but on that particular day it was very bad. It was Well, I mean, you, don't, you only have to have one really, really bad day. And the 7th of October was, an ex was a catastrophic day for mm. Israeli intelligence. Is, um, it a, so is it a coincidence that uh, we haven't heard of any uh, casualties, Israeli casualties? I mean, I know no, they I put mean, a figure of 10,000 or something on, on all the casualties, but the yeah. Israeli forces have gone in there, and so far no comment has been made as to how many men they've lost. Well, the Israeli spokespeople have kept on saying that the casualties that the Western media are getting are coming from the Hamas-controlled uh, Gazan Ministry of Health. And that may very well be true because, as your listeners will know, Hamas is not just a militant group, but it also has the capacity to take care of government, you know, the idea of governance. You know, they, they look after the health and welfare of average Gazans, or at least that's their mandate. Um, so basically, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, I, I, but, but, the, but the Israelis themselves, they will get hold of some figures. They will have their own figures, but it's also in their interest not to support the figures that are coming out of the Gazan uh, Ministry of Health because that's why that... They no. It's all right, don't worry about the music. That, <laughs> sorry, they, 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 keep on, they keep on pointing to Hamas, saying that we're at war with Hamas, don't believe in these figures. But obviously, you know, anyone on the ground, any journalist on the ground, taking shots of the levels of destruction that have been taking place, you must think that they've already taken out a few thousand... Uh, yeah. non-combatant I would think alright dear boy have a safe trip home thank you very much Jeremy it's Do always a pleasure Dr John <laughs> Bruni